When I was in college, at Covenant College, I had to take a literature class, and I chose a class because of a teacher, but also because of the subject. I chose Dr. Barker's Shakespeare class. He was a professor that just had the reputation of being a great teacher. And so we would read the Shakespeare plays. We even made a road trip down to Atlanta to see a, a play. But you had to make a presentation about analyzing different things in Shakespeare's plays. Now, part of my major was history, so I chose to look at some of the history plays. And you start with Richard III, Henry IV. And I found out on Facebook today that this is the weekend that they celebrate Henry IV's coronation. Now, that whole series of plays I found out was, I won't say political propaganda, but it certainly was propping up the current queen at the time. But yet another thing that happened on my birthday weekend, and it was interesting being here, is the reenactments that had to do with the Battle of Hastings. It was fought on October 14, 1066. And so as I thought about these things that had happened on my birthday, of course, when I was growing up, the big thing about my birthday in the United States was I was born in the same day that President General Dwight D. Eisenhower was born. And so I've grown up in the shadow of powerful figures who have had things happen to them in their lifetime. And so when we get to Genesis 17 and you see this mention of being a 99-year-old man, who had taken things into his own hands at his wife's encouragement. Hagar, this servant, is basically told your master is going to father a child by you. And Ishmael is born. So that when God comes to him, because remember that was in a period when you know, it appeared that God was silent because there had been 13 years. When you look at the 25 years between Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, you have these three very distinct revelations where God comes and speaks to Abraham. Now I want to just stop and, and talk about that because in the first Part of verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. What we have to remember and read into this is that these are the very words of God. God is having his words recorded and then written down by Moses. And that is one of the things that differentiates 
Christianity as a biblical religion is that we believe that God is there and God speaks. That God is making promises. As we go back and we kind of quickly review Genesis, you have the beginning where God speaks creation into being. Where God comes and calls out and says, where are you? When God curses them and tells them the consequences of their sin. And part of that consequence is being put out of the garden and you have this image of angels with flaming swords keeping them out, that they are out in a world that will be hard for them. But what do we see God doing? We see God not only going and looking for them as they, he did in the garden, but he's beginning to make promises. Genesis 12, I will bless you and you will bless others. Bless all the families. Then you have this covenant that is made in Genesis 15, where God says, don't be afraid, I am your shield, your very great reward. Abram's response was down in verse 6, when it says that he believed God and it was counted to him his righteousness and God makes that covenant in that awesome and very dramatic scene that is recorded there of these animals that are cut in half. And then the flaming tongue of fire in the fire pot passes between them. You see, one of the things about having something dramatic happen to you and knowing is that's not what happens every week. We live with what we refer to as the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, scripture, worship. Right now on Facebook, there is both in the western part of Scotland and in the United States among some of the Presbyterians that I'm associated, there is this great, great Prayer and desire for revival. And they're bringing out all the Scottish history. And what I did on Facebook was I basically laid it down. And I said, look, remember what Francis Schaeffer said? We need reformation, but we also need revival. We need right thinking ordered by the word of God, but we need revival having the Holy Spirit guide our lives. So how do you bring the revivals on the western side of Scotland, together with the Reformation on the east side, and bring that in so that God really does move among his people in a complete way. We can't have people just praying for revival or people praying for Reformation. Now, I know why Presbyterians want Reformation. is because we, we like to divide and to be smart. I remember when I was a senior in college, I was probably very insufferable because I had gotten good at answering questions. I knew where in the Bible to go to answer, you know, and it was like, you know, I was like a gunslinger, man. I get it out and give you the answer. But Schaefer comes along and says, the spirit needs to work in you. So when we look at this passage and... There's basically two 
proclamations that it begins and ends with, where God says, I. When you look at the latter part of verse 1, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And then at the end, and I will be their God. Now, I am God Almighty is something that is introduced here and is used several times. But if you really want to know about that name, go and read the book of Job, where it's used 31 times. That he is the God who is all-powerful. El Shaddai. The Lord appeared to him. Do you see what God is doing? He is appearing. He is there in a way that Abraham would have been conscious and aware of. But he's also speaking. Because remember back, you know, in in chapter 12, it says the Lord said in Genesis 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he says again, like he did in 15, two very simple things. Walk before me and be blameless. Now those are two words that I think it's relatively easy to remember and to understand. Because we, as we think about this grand story in Genesis that the covenant ties together, Walk before me. Is God reaching out and then sealing in a covenant, but reaching out and restoring what was lost in the garden? Walk before me. Now, I don't know how many places this last week I saw in the United States and in Great Britain where they are talking again and again about this loneliness crisis, where people are feeling lonely, left out. Even though they are surrounded by people, even though they are connected on Facebook and other social media, even though they may have a loving family, they still feel like orphans, like people who are on their own. What I want us to pray is that people will hear the word of God rather than the noise of our culture and hear God reaching out and saying, walk before me. I mean, think about that. God is saying, walk before me. He's not saying, walk behind me in the shadow. He says, I want you to be out front. I want you to be in a position where people will see that you are connected to me. Walk before me. Now, in terms of the grand story, I'm going to cut way ahead, skip a whole bunch of pastures, passages, When Jesus says, go make disciples, who are disciples? Disciples are followers. God uses before, follow, beside. Just like when we think about Christ, we are in Christ, Christ is in us. This walking before me, being in the presence of God. And we know from 15 is what he is doing, is letting everybody know, here is my child. The one that I've brought in, the one that I am going to make great. 
walk before me. Now, the prophet Micah uses this idea of walking. In Micah 6, verse 8, when it says, Do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Think about that. As we walk, we are going to reflect God. And the two things that Micah tells us about is justice and mercy. And then when we walk, it's, it's not pride, hey, look at me. No. It's a humble walk because the Father says, walk before me. I'm here because he reached out. I'm here because he's put his name on me. Be blameless without defect. That's the same word blemish or defect that is used to describe the lambs and the animals that are acceptable for sacrifice. How can I be blameless? I mean, we, every week we have a confession of sin. And every week we have an assurance of pardon that God forgives us. But you see, I know that the only way I can walk before God and be blameless is because of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now I'm going to read another passage from Hebrews, but I'm also going to plant a flag. In my preparation and prayers this week, I've not for the things that have gone before, trying to look ahead in terms of what I'll be preaching on. I am going to start after the first of the year preaching through the book of Hebrews. Now, I don't know what that's going to happen, is because it's going to be in my life almost like bookends. Back in 1976, I started and preached through the book of Hebrews as the first book I preached through as a young pastor. Over 40 years later now, I look at it and I say, I think it will apply and help you here in Kyle. That it will draw you to Christ, it will make you courageous, it will help you be a witness to your community. And again, it will tie into the covenant. Listen now to Hebrews 6, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope set before us. That oath is another word for the covenant, that God made a promise. That God made a promise with a ceremony that was sealed in blood. And notice it says so that we could hold fast in hope. Because every time I sin and I come to God, it's like, God, again? 
But then he gives me the hope because of Christ. He gives me that hope that I can indeed walk before him and be blameless because of Jesus Christ. Because I walk and I follow Christ. And I know that Christ was on the cross for my sins. And that's how I can be blameless. That's how I can be in the very presence of God. When you pray, when you read scripture, when you are together with other Christians, you need to sense the fact that God is there with you and that you are his children. Now, I'm going to go to the end and then work to the end through the passage. I will be their God. This is something that is repeated a number of times and You know, when we think about being practical, what to do in our daily lives, I think there is nothing more practical and real than knowing that God says, I will be your God. That he's the one who initiates it. He's the one who reaches out. I will be their God. Verse 2 says, after, you know, walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, one of the things in making a covenant, the word that we translate make is the word to cut. What do we see happen in chapter 15? God cut the animals as he made the covenant. And what do we see happening here? God, and you're going to see this throughout my sermons, is that God repeatedly says, I'm going to make a covenant. He renews it. He renews it. He wants to make it fresh for different generations, for different time periods in people's lives. Now, we get to see how Abram's changed. Remember in 15, he goes, but, but, what about this? What about that? He'd already adopted somebody to have his stuff when he died. Eleazar of Damascus was going to be the winner in the lottery of who gets Abram's stuff because he doesn't have any children. No. But we come here. Verse 3. Abram fell on his face. See, sometimes I think when we read passages like that, we say, oh, that's for Pentecostals. They can get slain in the spirit. They can do that. But we know in Presbyterian revivals, people get on the floor, they weep, and they cry out to God. Because God has gotten a hold of their heart. God is help them, and he knows that he has to be humble. He gets down in that Middle Eastern position of being down on his knees and is putting his face down. I'm not worthy. See, we, we live in this tension between I'm not worthy and walk before me. And God's going to lift him up. But there are times when 
if not physically, in our minds, in our hearts, in our attitudes, we need to be like Abram because of God's presence and to fall on our faces. We need to be able to be emotional and be struck by it and realize that sometimes when we are emotional, it's still, it's quiet. He's on his face. He's not yelling and screaming and doing that. He is just down there. He's not asking God, how's this going to work? I mean, I think he realizes that he tried to work it his own way and had it being a child by a slave woman. And that wasn't part of God's plan. And there would be consequences for that unbelief throughout history. Now, let's go down to verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Remember back to the first promise, blessing in chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation. Through you, all the families or nations, depending upon your translation, on earth will be blessed. But again, two, now in four, behold, my covenant is with you. Now, you keep hearing me bring adoption into this, and it's like adoption. Well, look what happens here. What do adoptive parents do? Don't they often rename their children, particularly small children? In our extended family, we have our newest member of the family who has been adopted from India, and his name is Samuel, which is kind of an awesome name. But yet, like a parent, you name it. And here God is renaming Abram to Abraham. Because how are all these things going to happen? How is he going to have a multitude of nations? How is he going to have kings and all the things that are promised here? Because the one who names him is going to keep his word. And when he says kings will come from you, we again jump way ahead to Christ, who is the king of kings and the lord of glory. Do you see how Abram's story that becomes Abraham's story, this grand story, will get us to Christ? And that we are tied back to the beginning, to these promises that are given. Listen to verse 7. Third time. Third time. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. What a promise. But when you look at the words, you see like he wants Abram and he wants us to understand. See, it's not just between God and Abraham, between me and you, your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Do you see how he kind of piles on those worlds to say, hey, it's going to happen and be unbroken? 
that I am going to be your God and the God of the generations after you? But see, the promise, and what we have to remember in our world that wants us to think that we have to buy or have everything or look like whatever, see, the promise is to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, when I, we were having children, I made, we made the decision that I would not baptize my own children. I would have somebody come in and minister to us and baptize our children. So three different friends came and baptized our children. But I baptized every one of our grandchildren, which in our family story is the 10th generation of Christians after we left Scotland. But we know that each generation has to make that commitment to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's not magic, but it is God's promise. And we are thankful that when we look at our grandchildren and we see professions of faith, we see children that you love to sing God's stories and hear God's stories. But notice again in verse 7, It's I will establish my covenant between me and you. So that those covenantal words are used about that last Passover. That cup of the covenant that comes down and that we are to use until he comes back. That we are part of that line of covenant children that God enables. That God wants to. Be their God. I am God Almighty. And I will be their God. See, we know these things. We experience these things because God, one, spoke, and then two, had Moses write it down. So that our faith is based both on the word of God and the actions of God. The word of God and here the promises that he's made. Now. This is where. You know, if you've been to a movie where you get to this exciting part and then all of a sudden it says, to be continued. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I remember when that happened in um, Lord of the Rings. And then they figured out with The Hobbit, you know, we should have made five Lord of the Rings movies instead of three. We should have split it up more. Because there was so much material. That's why I'm splitting this up. Because when you come back next week and we look at Genesis 17, 9 to the end of the chapter. You're going to see how in a very practical way God makes that covenant and reminds us of that covenant every day. So. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will be there. I will be 
your God. Let us pray. Father, you have given us these words, these words of promise and power. These words that remind us that you reach out in your grace to make us your children, to rename us and call us your heirs, and to pass it on from generation to generation as an everlasting covenant. So, Father, today as we leave, we pray that we might go out of here knowing that we are your children, that we are not alone. Help us to hear your words and at times, yes, to get down on our faces, on our knees before you. Because the power of your love and presence and holiness is there in our lives at that point. Father, we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.